and we can start. So uh, welcome everyone to Legere Out number one, Kamar Jobat, that is uh, written in Georgian, my native Georgian. Uh, welcome everyone from uh, around the world, uh, brethren all, uh, or just participants. I will briefly uh, introduce the initiative that we're just la launching uh, right now with, uh, uh, with Brother Ma uh, Martin. Um, after having discussed the opportunity to, uh, to somehow uh, share more light to, to the world around, uh, we decided to launch Legere uh, Aude, and this is an additional uh, dimension uh, after uh, running Sapere Aude on my, on, on my side. Sapereaude meaning in Latin, dare to know, dare to think. We decided that uh, knowledge should be uh, thought for or sought for, and not only through uh, new technologies, but we should remind that uh, reading is still there, and uh, uh, we should uh, try to dare to read. So Legereaude is dare to read in uh, Latin. And uh, it is my honor and pleasure to be uh, launching this initiative with uh, Luis Masonic, with Brother Martin. Uh, we will uh, be co-hosting uh, this initiative. Uh, during the initiative, we will, uh, every uh, first Sunday of each month, uh, we will try to host an interesting uh, Masonic author from Luis Masonic. And we will try to uh, unfold the story behind the book or in the book uh, giving the opportunity to the participants, to the public at large, whoever wants to participate in Legere Aude, to ask uh, or clarify or question or even comment on different parts of the book. So uh, uh, later on, you will be receiving the link to, uh, to the topic that we will be discussing today. So uh, once again, uh, from Sapere Aude, it is my pleasure to be launching this initiative with uh, Luis Masonic, Martin. Thank you very much, David. Yes, my name is Martin Falks, and I'm the general manager of Lewis Masonic, which is the world's oldest Masonic publishing company. We can imagine that when the Lewis Masonic first started publishing its works, the discussion that would take place when an inspirational bit of material or uh, a very intriguing philosophical work appeared would take place in private gatherings. There were clubs that you could join or salons that you could attend where you'd be able to really go in depth into something that you wanted to explore with someone else. Perhaps we can imagine Renaissance gentlemen uh, from ages uh, gone by in their, their drawing rooms or perhaps even in public places like coffee houses really uh, being very excited about work that they uh, had read. Or maybe we could imagine a salon where, where we have a hostess and she's uh, putting challenging questions to those who have really been studying a textbook. Nowadays, things have changed and 
Lewis Masonic continues to support Freemasonry and its related disciplines, but also to support discussion of works. Because when you read something, it can be a great inspiration. But when you discuss those reflections with other people, you can really lock in those lessons or learn by what you agree and what you disagree on. And for this reason, when David approached me and said that uh, he was interested in supporting Masonic literature, I knew that this was something which would be positive for everyone and that Lewis Masonic uh, should encourage their authors to take part. Okay, uh, thank you, Martin. And then I will uh, briefly introduce to all the new participants uh, very simple rules that we have in Sapere uh, Aude and today from today on Legere Aude, every first Sunday of the month, that we don't discuss interjurisdictional issues, we don't discuss politics or religion uh, for that matter, uh, for, for that purposes. Uh, we do allow male and female members and non-members and uh, Legere Aude as well as Sapere Aude is and are uh, a public educational activity, um, international, open to everyone, apolitical and uh, neutral in its sense. Uh, our main focus is uh, acquiring more knowledge, more light about the Freemasonry, about the things that surround Freemasonry. So uh, even though we may belong to different jurisdictions around the world, even though we may be, we may hold higher ranks in our jurisdictions, we still here are as individual members of our society and we do not reflect uh, any official standpoint or any official um, opinion of uh, our jurisdictions or organizations we may be affiliated with. So all the comments or questions or um, opinions shared here by the speaker should be treated and interpreted as private, personal opinion of that person, unless the speaker explicitly emphasized that this is uh, what he's or her, she's sharing is an official standpoint of any institution or organization. So, once again, uh, the only thing uh, that we require in Legere Aude, in Sapere Aude, is uh, that you may disagree, you may not like something, but uh, we ask you to express yourself in a civilized manner. That's the only request um, that um, kind of uh, is uh, from our side. You can share any thoughts, you won't be censored. Uh, but please do it uh, in a correct, proper, polite way. So uh, having those very simple rules in mind, it is my pleasure to introduce uh, today's topic and uh, uh, the speaker. So Legere Aude number one um, is honored to host uh, brother Stuart Cleland. Um, and today's topic is the cult of, Elu of the Elius coins a true foundation to the allegories. So aiming at spreading the light further around the world and promoting acquisition of Gnosis through dedicated reading, Sapere Aude and Louis Masonic under the mutual initiative Legere Aude, which is there to read, have the honor to host brother Stuart Cleland, who is a teacher of philosophy and religious studies. 
in and around the northeast of Scotland. He holds a master's degree in Western esotericism and PGDE in religious, moral, and philosophical studies, as well as BA in fine arts and philosophy. Brother Clayland's research uh, background is centered on esoteric spirituality and the practice of heterodox um, religious traditions with a particular interest in marginalized and persecuted religious communities, both historical and contemporary. His work engages with religious studies, specifically in the so-called Western esoteric tradition or hermetic tradition within religious, Masonic, or philosophical thought. His passion for the advancement of uh, spiritual diversity, the study of initiatic practices, and this pursuit of religious liberty has led him to lecture throughout Scotland and beyond. Brother Martin. Thank you. So I'd like to talk just briefly about this work, the, the Green Book, which has brought everyone here together and that uh, Stuart will be telling us a bit more about in, in a moment. The Green Book is fascinating because it's the foundational text of the first really organized uh, ritual society or which uh, in the Western esoteric tradition. The, a group of people who believe uh, that they are engaged in spiritual combat with negative forces and are uh, regenerating themselves to a, a, a higher state uh, before the fall. I think it's really exciting because this volume contains the actual practices and rituals of this society, which in the 18th century stood beyond Freemasonry. It was, it was a, a higher order and that has gone on to have such influence that there are many different offshoots and even groups which were inspired by or uh, transformations from this original current. And so this practice of uh, self-discipline and reflection, the ability to, to summon angels and to really dedicate yourself to the path, it shines throughout the text. And I think you're going to find it very exciting to hear more of the details from our uh, educated uh, translator who will follow me now. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for your attendance today. I'd like to start by thanking uh, David and Martin for their support, for asking me along to, to speak today, and especially to Martin and Lewis Masonic for having such faith in the, the project. I'd also like to thank Steve Adams and Joseph Wages, who helped with the book in such a way that it wouldn't be possible without their assistance. As mentioned in the introduction there is my day job, I deal with religious studies, and I'd just like to address the, the title of this uh, lecture today, The Cult of the Elocones. Now, as someone who studies religion and talks about religion every day, uh, the word cult is not a word that I would normally apply. I use the word cult today because that's a word that uh, Martinez de Pasquale used himself, and not to use that phrase would be anachronistic. Uh, we have to go by the, the wording and the, the, the beliefs of the people we're studying. And for that reason, uh, I use the word cult of the eloquent. 
Now I'll just share the screen and uh, we'll get started. Okay, as the high degrees of ecosse Freemasonry spread across the 18th century Europe, an obscure and occult order began to develop, known as the Order of Night Masons, elect cones of the universe. Characterized by the practice of a Gnostic-infused form of Judeo-Christian theosophy with a Kabbalistic veneer, the Elo Cohen's represented a high point in continental Freemason research for its own meaning. Requiring the utmost commitment and a decidedly monastic way of life, the Order prescribed everything from hairstyle to diet and with it a very distinct theosophical mystic millenarianism. Indeed, far from the everyday festivities of mainstream Freemasonry, the Elu Cohen's saw themselves as nightly priests engaged in a form of cosmic theological combat with angelic and demonic entities. Drawing its membership for the bourgeoisie, the military or the aristocratic, the rights of the Elu Cohen's instructed its initiates, or rather emulators, and how best to enter into ecstatic relations with celestial and angelic spirits sympathetic to mankind's fallen state. The operating Cohen could, it was believed, thereby obtain providential favour on the path towards ultimate cosmic reintegration with the divine. However, after the death of the Order's enigmatic founder, Martinez de Pasquale, in 1774 in Haiti, the doctrine of the Elu Cohen's may well have been lost to history had it not been for the efforts of a handful of particularly devoted disciples, such as Louis-Claude de Saint-Martin, but perhaps more so, Jean-Baptiste Villamoz. Such was Villamoz's enthusiasm for Pasquale's unique blend of Masonic theosophy that shortly after his initiation in 1767, he was made master of the Grand Orient of Orients of Léon, Grandmother and Mother Lodge of France, and promptly promoted to the rank of Roucois, the highest grade of the order, in May 1768. After Pasquale's death, Willemos ensured the survival of the doctrine of reintegration by preserving it within a secret class of degrees hidden within a wider overall Masonic framework of Willemos's own Masonic order known as the Rectified Scottish Rite. Consisting really of little more than long instructional discourses entitled the Professed Class, these degrees served as repositories of sorts for Pasquale's complex doctrine, if not its actual practices. Detail in a secret shadowy history transmitted down through the ages, the doctrine of reintegration, as embodied by the professed class, recalls the existence of a primitive, essential and fundamental order, a secret wisdom tradition to which Freemasonry would be the final inheritor. For Pasquale, this hidden primitive order, or as he himself phrased it in his book, The Treaties of Reintegration of Beings, this primitive cult was a form of ecstatic devotional theogy involving a logic, uh, elaborate magical operations. Pasquale's book, The Treatise, details a complex mythological framework underpinning this magical system as a divinely appointed form of cultic worship, explaining its roots straight by, uh, stretch right back to Adamic and pre-Adamic creation. The cult of the Elo Cohen's is a primitive cult entrusted by God to Adam and secretly transmitted down through the ages. The Elo Cohen's raison d'etre then is to perform this cult in its fullest sense as a form of gnosis for the benefit 
of all mankind and the eventual transformation of the entire universe. Adopting the title that the angel Gabriel gave to Daniel, instructed, uh, Pasquale instructed his men of desire and a practice of personal reintegration that acted as a prelude to a desired end time when the whole universe might be reintegrated in a divine oneness. Pasquale's reintegration, the major theme of his book, The Treaty, is by definition eschatological, millenarian and apocalyptic in nature. It would therefore not be unfair if we were to use Pasquale's own language in describing the Elecoans as quite literally an end of the world cult in high French Masonic garb. Pasquale's Elecoans represent the example par excellence of a theological, Christian, millenarian, Masonic theosophy. And Pasquale himself needs to be seen as someone like a Masonic charismatic, laboring intently to imitate the eschaton. By this I mean his Elecoans were trying to bring about the eschaton or the final heaven-like stage of history, and this the immediate material world. Pasquale writes that the earth offers me nothing but sadness, horror, and inconceivable torment. Those of trust in God, men of desire, can, Pasquale suggests, live within the confines of nature and yet still avoid the dangers associated with the anticipation that it will be one's bodily form that will be reintegrated. The material is only apparent. Indeed, it is a prison, a nullified prison at that. Such a reintegration as Pasquale envisions heralds a restoration of all humanity and nature to their pure original states. This reintegration requires an alchemical-like deintegration of man's physical body so as to allow his original body of glory to reappear in all its splendour, as will the earth reappear as a reintegrated Eden, a spiritual temple to God, rather than a material prison of mankind. With his emphasis on the interdependence of God, man and nature, and themes of fall and reascension, the doctrine of the reintegration can fully be described as a theosophy, a Masonic theosophy informing a unique ceremonial practice of theological worship. Now, as far back as the third century, the Neoplatonic philosopher Porphyry speaks of a theosophist, a perfected individual, simultaneously the artist, philosopher, and priest. Pasquale's knights, masons, elect priests of the universe, and their mission to reintegrate man into divine perfection do embody the notion of the theothosis clearly. But in reality, the Cohen order represents a matrix of many different heterodoxes, including the medieval grimoire tradition. Historically then, Pasquale's primitive cult is perhaps best viewed as a reaction of sorts to the kind of prevailing rationalism of the Enlightenment as an attempt by Pasquale and his followers to allegorize their own particular brand of Prisca Theologica, by that I mean a, a pristine original theology. In many ways, out of the chaos of 1760s French Freemasonry, we see Pasquale eh, attempting to reenact his analogy in the form of a re-enchanted or rather ecstatic style of Ecosse Freemasonry. And indeed, for many, even today, this re-enchantment of Pasquale's brought with it a genuine spiritual goal to the Masonic Lodge. True to the Masonic fashions of his day, Pasquale added to this already heavily laden theosophical romance by his introduction of something known as spiritual chivalry. 
Pasquale was almost certainly influenced in this, uh, at least directly or indirect, indirectly, by the influence of the Scottish quietist chevalier Andrew Michael Ramsey, whose own traditional history of Freemasonry, erroneously but universally referred to as his Horatian, was probably originally delivered in France at St John's Lodge No. 1 on the 26th of December 1736. Part of an influential Scottish circle of mystics described as the mystics of the Northeast, Ramsey had been a proponent of the spiritual philosophy known as quietism. Now, quietism is a pejorative name given to a set of Christian beliefs that rose uh, in popularity in the northeast of Scotland, France, Italy and Spain during the 1670s and 1680s, particularly associated with the writings of the Spanish mystic Miguel de Molinos, and uh, they were considered a heresy by the Pope and the, a papal bull was issued against them in 1687. Now the quietest heresy was seen to consist of wrongly elevating the notion of contemplation over the idea of meditation. It was one that favoured intellectual stillness over vocal prayer and interior passivity over pious action. Quietists focused on spiritual growth and a union with God, one in which there existed the possibility of achieving a, a sinless state and a union with God. Quietism was a spiritual philosophy particularly prevalent among Scottish Jacobite exiles. Clearly then, Pasquale's system did not appear from nowhere. He was an adept in the marketplace of French Masonic innovation, and the quietest infused influence of the Jacobite Ramsey should not be underestimated in this regard. For example, in Ramsey's book, entitled Philosophical Principles of Natural and Revealed Religion, Ramsey writes, God's primitive, positive, ultimate, and absolute designs cannot be eternally frustrated. Therefore, before the general re-establishment of lapsed beings, the earth and all its inhabitants are to be restored to their primitive, paradisical beauty. Typical of wider quietest beliefs surrounding a promised Stuart restoration found within sections of the Jacobite exiles, Ramsey sets a clear Masonic precedence for Pasquale's doctrine of reintegration. It is Ramsey who first introduced the legendary chivalric origins to Freemasonry, grafting the Crusaders and the Knights of St John of Jerusalem onto James Anderson's uh, traditional Scottish connections. Such is Ramsey's influence uh, across a whole of European Freemasonry, the, the Scottish Holy Knight motif becomes ubiquitous in continental Freemasonry, manifesting as either Crusader, Templar or Jacobite. Shortly after 1730, it seems the first Masonic chivalric orders are being formed. Clearly then, by the 1760s, Pasquale had a great deal to work with. And whilst it's still spiritually not enough for him, we can see with confidence that the primitive cult grew an already fertilised soil. The first known archives tell us then that Pasquale had already begun his activities around 1760 in Deleuze. His first experiment in high-grade Freemasonry, however, was with his chapter of Scottish Judges, founded by him at Montpellier in 1754, before settling in Bordeaux in 1762 to begin formalising the Elocoans. We can see the influence in the Masonic landscape around him. 
It would be naive to assume Pasquale's ignorance and ridiculous to suggest that the titles, grades and nomenclature of the Earl of Cones with anything other than clearly borrowed. However, beyond this, the influence of the nascent Scottish rights on an emerging French right on Pasquale's magpie-like system should not be overestimated. The content, meaning and motive have all been completely re-engineered in Pasquale's ecstatic écossais reenactment. Such are his innovations, the various grades and degrees can no longer even be considered Masonic initiations, but rather ordinations. In the broader context, the widespread uh, proliferation of these high degrees indicate in France that there was indeed a deeper need for spiritual truths than the humble craft could offer. Pasquale is part of this wider movement of Freemasons who seem increasingly dissatisfied with Masonry's growing allegiance with Enlightenment values and cosmopolitanism. As represented in the Masonic, the Masonic sphere by James Anderson's Constitutions of 1723. In response, many seem particularly attracted to the romantic allure surrounding the diaspora of spiritually inclined Jacobite Scottish nobles exiled throughout Europe prior even to the 1715 uprising. Indeed, there's a living embodiment of Ramsay's popular Masonic spiritual night motif. The exiled Scottish Jacobites become en vogue within the fashionable mysticism of the lodges. This lends itself well to the apocalypticism that we find in royalist interpretations within a Stuart context of a divine right and manifest destiny. After the glorious revolution, such notions had begun to underpin Jacobite hopes for political and spiritual restoration, with, such, uh, with similar such hopes seemingly permeating esoteric and Masonic culture too, all of which would appear to make its way in one way or another into underpinning the emergent Masonic theosophy of Martinez to Pasquale's eloquence. Now, James Anderson's constitutions claimed that the revival of the royal art of masonry in England was instituted by the Stuart royal line, namely King James VI of Scotland, who, being a mason king, revived the English lodges. The Masonic fascination with Jacobite spiritual knights and Stuart ideology even reaches the German-speaking lands with one Baron Karen von Hold and his Masonic rite of the strict observance. Claiming to have been initiated into a Templar degree in France in 1742 by the mysterious Knight of the Red Feather, a shadowy figure from the northern mountains of the Scottish Highlands, von Hun's system traced its origins back to Knights Templars and implied that the unknown superior or superior on canoe was the Grand Master of the Knights Templars, which continued to exist in hiding again in the mountains of the north of Scotland, often referred to in Masonic traditions is Herodom. Supposedly accompanied by the soon-to-be Jacobite martyr, William Boyd, the fourth Earl of Kilmarnock, this unknown superior, clearly intended to be Charles Edward Stuart, the young pretender, is said to have ruled through von Hunt, with the members of his right expected to strictly observe the commands of this superior. However, by the 1770s, there were suspicions that those unknown superiors were in fact a complete fabrication. Now, the Ellie Cohen system was comprised of 10 écossais grades, capped with an 11th, the Rue Croix, 
which uniquely involved direct magical operations and can hardly be considered masonry at all. Spirits were summoned, and if successful, the candidate could be assured of celestial approval and possible reconciliation. Before elevation to the Ruqua, candidates were required to prove that they had achieved this state of reconciliation. Pasquale teaches that this reconciliation was an essential step in their advancement. In order to work towards this, it instructed how a special prayer was to be employed, known as the Invocation of Reconciliation. Its ultimate aim was to obtain a sign from the Bon Companion, a spirit, or what we might understand as a holy guardian angel. This sign, which manifests itself most often in the form of a luminous glyph, shows the candidate that he has henceforth been reconciled with his guardian angel and has taken the first step on the path towards helping achieve the ultimate goal of cosmic reintegration. The cult instructed its initiates in the drawings of hieroglyphs before such magical operations. Any particular hieroglyph used found within from amongst a list of 2,400 hieroglyphs provided by Martinez himself. These corresponded to a particular angel, and if the operation was successful, a further hieroglyph would appear in luminous form. These luminous glyphs act as a signature of the spirits who have chosen to cooperate with the initiate on his path to reconciliation with the divine. God, for the Elu Cohen, is the pinnacle of a celestial hierarchy, disseminating down through the different orders of angels, elements and planets, in various degrees of emanation to the plants, animals and minerals below, becoming symbolic in themselves, hence following the hermetic axiom of as above, as above so below. Although, again, in Pasquale's own deeply idiosyncratic manner. For the Elu Cohen's, therefore, it is possible that man might leave his prison and partake in a quest up through the higher light of each degree, working with and within his luminous correspondences of the celestial hierarchy to achieve an initiation into greater levels of illumination in the light of an inner primitive Christian revelation. Pasquale's primitive cult is, in at least one sense, an allegorization of this inner Christian revelation which itself is uh, described as a timeless revelation within Christianity. The scholar Arthur Valuis describes this form of theosophy as an authentic Gnostic tradition stretching from pseudo-Dionysus Areopagite right through to the mystic Jacques of Burma. Clearly more Gnostic than Hermetic, Pasquale's doctrine of man's return to his original natural state is indebted to earlier theosophical traditions and their historical Gnostic elements. In the next section, I'm going to discuss here Pasquale's particular form of Gnosticism. The Gnostics placed the origin of everything in a primary principle. This first principle was a pure, perfect and supreme power and is eternal, infinite and absolute. This God is hidden, unknown and unknowable. Gnostic cosmology contrasted two separate worlds, the eternal world of God and the heavenly hierarchy of the Pleroma, or as Pasquale calls it, the divine court, which includes the entire hierarchy of angels variously grouped into principalities, powers and thrones, etc. 
Pasquale taught his eloquence that God as celestial king emanated these uh, emancipated beings into existence within the divine immensity. Emanated with free will, they were nevertheless instructed in a divine form of a ritual worship. These spiritual beings lived in the original state of reality and perfection, the noumenal world of things. But these beings desired to act as demiurges, to equal God and create for themselves. God ordered the minor spirits who had remained loyal to create and enclose these prevaricating spirits in an encircled material space as punishment. In the Eloquence teachings, heavenly androgynous man was emanated also with free will in order to guard these spiritual beings and help guide them back to their original purity. However, this man-god, Adam Ru, permitted himself to be seduced by these perverse angels, and he too came to desire equality with God by creating spiritual beings. He fell, dragging the whole of reality with him, a process Pasquale calls the prevarication. For the Elucoan then, the fall was a two-step process. For the Gnostics, man is trapped, separated from the real God by the demiurge. However, Gnosis can restore man's inner spark. The Gnostic believes that this universe we inhabit is produced not by this ineffable God, but by an inferior being known as a demiurge, identified with Jehovah of the Old Testament and the demiurge of Plato's Timaeus. For Pasquale and his Eloquence, however, it is man himself that was persuaded to act as a demiurge. Mankind has trapped himself, a prisoner, in the very jail he was created to be warden of. Only Gnosis gained in the practice of the primitive cult can reintegrate man back to his true divinity. Exiled, the divine spark of Gnosis enables the process to begin in man, to aid him to extend the multitude of spiritual planes, to spark an internal liturgical return through his practice in the nobility of the primitive cult. Willemoz captures this beautifully when he writes, the king of the universe is imprisoned in a dark abode, but there he maintains a striking image of his primal grandeur. We might envision this in terms of Rousseau's noble savage, but on a cosmic scale, the Cohen is a man of desire, aspiring to the primordial man of nature. Man is born free, but he is everywhere in chains. The Gnostic rejects the world. They portray man and the world in a miserable state. The Elucoan labours tirelessly for the sake of man to ensure his restoration back from existential exile to the glorious love of the divine court. Pasquale is a man in exile, alive at a time often characterised as a century of light, an age of reason. Men like Pasquale were increasingly finding themselves in exile both from God and their once divine royal court a century that is characterised by individual liberty, freedom of expression and the eradication of religious authority. The Enlightenment, with its rationalism and secularisation, oversaw the preeminence of reason over religious dogma. And this gave rise, amongst many, to a reaction that has been called the counter-Enlightenment. And it has been described as not a nostalgic, traditionalist, even repressive. Like many Freemasons, Pasquale can be seen as part of this counter-enlightenment. Here was a deeply pious man, a royalist, 
a Conservative, faced with the existential crisis of a new world of science and infringement, both materialistic and mechanistic, with their fanciful alternative histories and mythologized origins, the ecossay and chivalric degrees may have been a way out of this perceived crisis between mind and soul prevalent at the time. In the age of Voltaire and Rousseau, Pasquale is a man out of touch, both within and without the lodge. The Grand Lodge of France would, in August 1766, exclude him from the lodges under their control, calling him a sectarian. Clearly alienated and exiled, he finds other increasingly marginalised acolytes and forms of Freemasonry emphasising power and tradition, sovereignty, divine right and inherited wisdom. Now, the rise and fall of the high degree system of the 18th century are distinguished by common features, dubious and spurious origins. The legends invented by various groups to explain their supposed authentic origins serve as a means of regularizing a self-created system and are intertwined in the fabric of the legends of the degrees themselves. The Elocones, in this respect, are no different. Pasquale's Masonic legitimacy has traditionally rested on the authenticity of an apocryphal patent from 1738 delivered by the young pretender himself, Charles Edward Stuart, to his father and then transmitted down to him. Fresh evidence would suggest, however, that this 1738 Stuart patent is nothing more than another rather elaborate function underpinning Pasquale's entire Masonic system. A Cohen diploma has recently been discovered in Minsk, awarded by Pasquale's lodge in Bordeaux on the 22nd of October 1765 to a brother. It is illustrated in black, red and green ink on vellum, signed and sealed with a red wax seal affixed to blue, white, red and green ribbons and framed in hand-drawn triangles. It is almost identical to the well-known 1738 Stuart patent and tellingly, it is written in the same hand. The Minsk diploma originates from the lodge founded by Pasquale in Bordeaux in 1762 until 1768. Later, he uh, enters a lodge known as La Francie in Bordeaux and transforms it entirely in line with his own complex uh, theosophic doctrine of Masonic theogy, renaming it. It was recognised by the Grand Lodge de France in 1765, the same year he went to Paris befriending Jean-Baptiste Villemos. It would appear, based on this Minsk diploma, that this 1760s prototype Cohen system only had four high degrees eh, as late as 1765. These are precisely the same high degrees and the correct progression being worked in the majority of French lodges and officially codified later still by the Grand Orient de France. Here we observe an emerging system in its original state anchored to tradition. More importantly, however, in comparison to the Minsk diploma drafted in 16, eh, 1765, the 1738 Stuart patent is clearly identical in style, handwriting and form. This indicates that the apocryphal 1738 Stuart patent as it exists today finds its true origins in about 1765 and not some 29 years earlier as a gift from the exiled Stuart court. By this rationale, 
1738 Stuart patent appears to be nothing more than an attempt to self-charter under fictitious Jacobite auspices, an abundantly prevalent practice within continental lodges at this time. When the Grand Lodge of France was dissolved by royal edict in February the 21st, 1767, less than a year after his exile from the craft, it must have been bittersweet. Pasquale was a pious Catholic of noble descent, as were his eloquence. Their universe was not one that could be catalogued neatly in the pages of Diderot's encyclopedia. The complex hierarchical structure of the Cohen system, earthly and spiritual, plays a great deal to its theosophical heritage and as a reaction to Cartesian mechanics. But it must also be read as a reaction against Enlightenment values prevalent in French lodges at the time. Such a reenactment of Pasquale's offers a real spiritual goal for disillusioned aristocratic nations faced with the first stirrings of secularism and the Republic. Pasquale represents a way of life increasingly alienated from the world he knows. For many like him who entered the lodges, it was a struggle to reconcile themselves with the spirit of this new age. Pasquale's system offered reconciliation with a spirit rather more literally. Now, the Kabbalistic aspects of Pasquale's doctrine are often overstated. Strangely, being a Spanish Jewish convert to Catholicism, he has a notoriously clumsy handling of Hebrew, and it serves as evidence of his lack of acquaintance with the primary sources. However, certain Kabbalistic notions are evident in the primitive cult. The notions and questions originate with the 16th century Kabbalist Isaac Luria. Known as the Ari or the Lion of Safed, Luria instigated a new form of Kabbalistic thinking known as Lurianic Kabbalah. Luria himself writes very little. His work becomes known through its reference uh, in his uh, pupils' writings and their later translations into Western languages. He is credited with specific Kabbalistic innovations that simultaneously clarify and yet contradict or complicate earlier Kabbalistic doctrines. Luria developed an earlier idea of Zimzum, a, a contraction. This is a contraction of the Ein Sof, God retracting into himself in order to make room for a void for creation to exist. This introduced a sense of exile into the heart of Jewish mysticism. Luria envisions the beginning and end of time. Ultimately, redemptive qualities inherent in the restoration of the Tiktong are at play within the doctrine of the Eloquoans. Pasquale's reintegration does have some genuine Hebrew elements, but as with most Masons, Pasquale used it as a means of vindicating Christianity as the true religion based on an esoteric interpretation of Hebrew mystical lore. The doctrine of the Tikkun places exile at the centre of a, professional, a processional stage in the universal process of ultimate renewal, perfection and redemption. Mosul Adil Adel disagreed with Gershom Sholem and his assertions that this was a reaction to traumatic historical Jewish expulsions, stating rather that it was a natural progression of pre-existing Kabbalistic principles. Eventually, matter would return to its original state, its original spiritual state, although the progression would be long, difficult. 
exile was therefore a necessary though transitory stage in a process which would end in universal salvation. Pain and suffering were inevitable, but as a result of human actions in the form of positive redemptive acts, every individual would eventually be purged. Pasquale was an exile from the Grand Lodge of France and from the Enlightenment, a mason whose dubious Masonic legitimacy is found in the authority of an exiled king. Wander in France, Pasquale taught a doctrine of exile from the lore of an exiled people, such as the existential cry of the Coens at the Western Wall of the Temple. It is a sad footnote, therefore, that the Elo Cohen's lineage effectively died when Pasquale left France for Santo Domingo, Haiti in 1772 in order to collect an inheritance. Santo Domingo accounted for a third of the entire Atlantic slave trade. Always troubled by financial problems, it is a painful hypocrisy, hypocrisy that a lifetime of debt accrued in the fight against spiritual evil should be settled by the revenue of a very earthly evil. Brethren, thank you for your attention. Thank you, Stuart, so much. So, <clears throat> Father Martin, before you take over the moderation, let me inform about the um, rule, how we proceed on. In order to ask your questions, please find the raise hand button, uh, which uh, sh should be located in the participants panel to the right side or it might be hidden under the reaction button, which is below your Zoom screens, depending on the device and version of the Zoom you are using. So uh, uh, now we will enable all the microphones, but please, please keep your microphones off. Alice, you are given the floor. And as soon as you finish asking your question or making your comment, uh, mute your microphone again, so we can keep clear recording. So thank you so much. In, and for in any case, if you, uh, you have any problem with finding those buttons, you can share your question in written in the public chat or privately to Martin or to me, and we'll make sure those are delivered to the speaker to answer or to consider upon. Uh, the same goes for uh, YouTube viewers. Please use YouTube chat room to express your uh, thoughts, questions, and uh, definitely we already have one that is waiting for Stuart. So I will now enable everyone's microphone and keep your microphones off, please, again. Martin, floor is yours. Stuart, what a wonderfully beautiful and eloquent, inspiring talk that was. Uh, I really enjoyed it. And I'm really happy that I get to ask you some questions first. Now you talked about Porphyry's vision of uh, adepthood, of perfection, uh, very early on in this in the, the, the talk. So I'm going to start playing the role of Porphyry uh, for your Latinus here and start with some tricky questions. Uh, there might be tricky questions that would involve uh, looking things up. Uh, so do do let me know if I'm if, if you need a bit of time and can't answer them here. The first question is this, this whole concept of regeneration from this fallen state to our original pristine higher state, it's very exciting. But I'd like to know more what this tradition, what, what 
both the, the founder and those who, who went uh, after him envisioned this would be like. If, if I was to say to you, I'm going to regenerate this plant, you know, you'd see it withered and without flowers, without fruits, we'd have a quite clear idea that its colour would come back and that it would start to be able to flourish and fruit again and reproduce and grow. What would they expect the changes in a successful member of the order who was doing everything, was being guided, had that contact with their, their um, that bond spirit? What would they expect this regeneration to look like? So I think it's important when we answer that question to, to bear in mind that for uh, Pasquale and for uh, the Elecones, a requirement for entry um, was a, a deep Catholic faith. In fact, you had to go to mass before any operations. And we have to come to it with that perspective. They are deeply Catholic and Catholic theology however unorthodox uh, Pasquale makes it, is behind a lot of the ideas. Now, as a Catholic, they would be going to mass, and it's the idea that it's transubstantiation, that you are uh, bringing the Jesus into the world, into a physical host. The reintegration uh, that they are trying to bring about uh, is to force Jesus to force the return of Jesus back into the world, the world as uh, the bread, and the spirit of the, of the prim, primal Christ coming back into that host, and we're going to reintegrate everything back into a divine oneness. Now, there are problems with this. Uh, we can't speak about Freemasonry as, as a monolith. Uh, it's internally diverse, the same as any other spirituality. But for many Freemasons, the idea of the immortality of the soul is very important. But of course, if you're re reintegrating into the one, well, the soul isn't immortal. It's being destroyed into a, a whole. And again, this is a kind of unique idea that we get within a, a, the Elocoans and something that's completely against a Kabbalistic ideas, that the, the idea that you can obliterate the soul. For Pasquale, a, it would be something like a reintegration into whole to a pre-Adamic age, a time before the fall, where everyone is at one with God and it's a perfect and paradise, a paradise, a Garden of Eden for him. He has a really strict and complicated mythology and there would be steps within that in which a man would take his place amongst the angels as a man-god. It would be, first of all, man reintegrating as the man-god, the Adam Rue, and then he, mankind, been able to educate the evil, perverse spirits back into a oneness with God, and then ultimately everything being regenerated in a kind of alchemical sense back to divine perfection. What would be that? What that would be like, looking at it with our bare eyes, I'm not sure what Pasquale had in mind, uh, but it is something that uh, they believed only a certain few could do. And for me, this is a gen uh, the, the genuine Rosicrucian tradition. When we think back to the, uh, the Confessio and the Fama, with a secret society laboring to heal the world gratis, or the Ruqua 
of that secret society who are working a, a divine form of worship to heal the world gratis. Wonderful. I love that vision that we, we integrate everything in us, uh, the, all the, any negative in us, so we can help integrate the, uh, the rest of the world there as well. That's superb to hear. Okay, my second question. How would this be done? And um, we've heard about rituals, other, other techniques. And um, what would be the transformational process? Would it be like a Neoplatonic style of meditation on original virtues or forms, or would it be uh, more of a, a, a different type of practice? What, what methods would the practitioner be, be using to bring around this integration? So the actual operations of the Cohen were based on the medieval grimoire tradition. It would be magical circles that would be draw, drawn on the floor. It would involve lengthy fasting and withdrawal from the world. We would be uh, utilising uh, certain hieroglyphs, sigils, holy names, in order to draw down uh, planetary spirits and angels in order to help defeat demonic uh, spirits who are holding us back from the reintegration. The Elokoans were military men in many cases, and they are spiritual warriors. They are withdrawn for a fight. They are bringing down evil entities, drawing them in and using the angels as a form of strength in order to defeat these different demonic uh, entities in the world to help reintegrate. And the ultimate aim is to try and materialize a figure known as Le Chos, the, the thing. And this is understood in many different ways, but ultimately it's the idea of the primordial Christ, the word. You're actually invoking the logos into the world. Again, using the material earth as a host to draw down Jesus, the Christ, into the world to tra transform it in the same way as the Catholic mass. Okay, this is my final question. I've got many, but I think it's, it's a bit unfair for me to completely pick up your attention. The, the sigils that uh, appear when, you, when your guide um, is present, you, you mentioned, and of course there's a, a set of them here. So is this a way of the, uh, the, the good companion, the, uh, the good spirit, uh, communicating with you it, which one it is. Is this a dictionary of different spirits that might come? Uh, what is the purpose in the, the, the sigil? Is this how it, how it works? That's correct. Uh, some people have referred to it as a telephone book of spirits. It's an idea of their signature that exists in the world. It, you will see it sometimes known as a pass, and it's a way of you communicating or showing that the, your guardian angel, your bon companion, has reconciled with you. And the idea of it is like a three-dimensional object. And if you look at the sigils that are within the book in the 2,400 names, you'll see them, the same sigil, but to the left, rotated round, backwards, because the idea was that it would exist in space, a three-dimensional object, and you had to be able to perceive it from different uh, points of perception in order to recognize it. So there would, there's a few of them that were repeated because they were three-dimensional objects. Once that appears, that writing on the wall, 
then you know that you have been reconciled with your holy guardian angel. And it's only then, once you can prove that by revealing to Pasquale your signal, uh, your sigil that you've received in your operations, you would be elevated to the Ruqua and you would be part of that elite who would labor with these spirits and use the power of your guardian angel to help with the business of reintegration, the building of the spiritual uh, temple of God. Fantastic. Okay, so it's time to uh, let other people ask some questions. Uh, Glenn, you've had your hand up longest. Uh, the floor is yours. Um, greetings, everyone. Uh, and I thank you for doing this for us. Um, my question is a possibility of influence on Pasquale and the Elokohim from the Orthodox Celtic presence, perhaps there, in the idea of theosis as reintegration or theoria or hypnosis. Could there a possibility be an influence from that into Pasquale's work? Thank you. Yes, I mean, it's possible. He's a widely, widely read person and he has a very magpie-like system. The myth is that he had a relative within the Spanish Inquisition and any confiscated books was kept in a family library. So the myth is that Pasquale had access to this whole a unorthodox, heterodox library of material that should have been burned and, and used that to construct his, his system. I personally believe it's probably a closer to a kind of naive reading of Kabbalistic ideas and the influence of a quietism, this idea of a a kind of spiritual philosophy that was being prevalent amongst Jacobite exiles. This was a very uh, fashionable idea uh, that you could have a spiritual warrior. What's more romantic than a, an exiled spiritual warrior from a, a northern kingdom who have a banned language uh, and uh, are currently fighting to restore both a spiritual and political uh, system? And I think for Pasquale, this is, this is where he gets the ideas from. You also uh, see uh, in Pasquale uh, a lot of Gnosticism. And I think in answering your questions, if there is a con uh, uh, any kind of contact or crossover, it's from the, the Gnostic influences that uh, would be present in both the Orthodox uh, religion a, and the, the hermetic Gnostic traditions that Pasquale must have been well read in. Um, Martin, can we take one question from the chat, if I may? So the question comes uh, as this, uh, are there Christian esoteric orders within Freemasonry similar to Elu's coins today? Uh, there's certainly Christian esoteric orders out there, and I believe that there is modern incarnations of the Elder Cohen. Uh, and uh, for anybody that's interested in the practical uh, application of these ideas, that is uh, an avenue that uh, would be better 
my interest in, in the Cohen is from a, a, an academic scholarly point of view. I'm interested in the ideas and theories and the technicalities of how to work the rituals. There's other places out there. I'm sure with a, a, a Google search, you'll be able to find modern, find modern incarnations of the Cohen order. A, a, big emphasis, a big impetus of me a, and the Green Book coming to publication is that a, a lot of orders in the past have with a, have been put forward a, a version of the Eloquence that isn't historically accurate, that they've filled in the blanks. A, and the, everything that I've spoke about today and everything that's in the book is available from public libraries. There is nothing that is not available to anybody with a library card. I'm here in the north of Scotland with a phone and a laptop, and I was able to, to, to translate and deal with these, these documentations. I think in this day and age, uh, this information should be freely available. My understanding of Christian esoteric magical orders uh, in the contemporary world is pretty slim and I'm sure you'll be able to find some yourself by, by just uh, Googling that. They, they seem to have a, a strong web presence, which is kind of ironic given the, the nature of the Eloquins to, uh, and the Martinist tradition as a whole to remain as a, an unknown philosopher. Some are uh, the most well-known unknowns that you could be, I suppose. Thank you, Stuart. And uh, one more question that is from YouTube. And that's regarding your book. So I was wondering, uh, the author says, Carl G., uh, if the Lewis Masonic book has the same content as the Green Book published by Hellfire Club Books. So uh, what happened is it's you know, well documented that we had some uh, problems with the, the original edition of the book, uh, for which neither myself, Joseph, or uh, Steve ever received any uh, funds from and many uh, people managed to be uh, without a book that they ordered. So uh, Martin uh, had faith in the project and knew that it would be uh, something that would be uh, of interest to many people. He took the project on. The material that we have within the Lewis Masonic tradition, uh, Masonic edition is far more uh, in-depth. We've updated a lot of information. We've condensed things down and we've been able to add a whole new introduction, a whole new transcription of aspects of it, and uh, some of the extra material within the uh, earlier edition was kind of irrelevant. It was there because we had the opportunity to put it out, and this edition is the one that would really be of interest to anyone particularly interested in the ideas of Martinez Pasquale and the practices of the Eloquence. Martin, you want to take over? Yes, certainly. Let's let's go back to questions here. Uh, Steve Adams, you have a question. Hey, Stuart. Um, do we know uh, what grimoires Pascalia? Do we have any like correspondences that that reveal um, no. maybe the sources? Because it seems to be from a lot of different places, and you know. Um, I'm, I'm just wondering, can we trace his grimoire ownership or what he was exposed to? The closest we have is a, a suggested reading list that we find at the bottom of a catechism within the Belo uh, manuscript. 
Uh, and so we know, for example, is it the Swan Book? What's mm-hmm. the full title? Swan, Swan. Varanorius, yeah. Yeah, we know that he was definitely using that. Uh, do we have evidence to say what his library was? No, uh, but we could probably reverse engineer it. It's something that I think this is an area of study that falls between Masonic scholarship and the <clears throat> medieval studies, people who are focused more on uh, the grimoire tradition, the magical tradition. And there isn't uh, a lot of crossover, strangely, between the two. And it's not the grimoire tradition is not something I have a background in. And really, I would invite other people to that do know that particularly well to investigate Pasquale's traditions to look at her book and really uh, be able to reverse engineer what he was looking at to help uh, with the actual names, the sigils, the plan of the drawings, but uh, nothing official other than that short reading list within the Bailey uh, manuscript. Okay. Do we do we have any examples of him communicating in cipher to anyone? Uh, no that I am aware of, that I am okay. aware of. Uh, they would be, there is a code within a, the Algiers manuscript when it gets to the, sec, uh, the the names, the powerful names of the angels and demonic entities. There is a code there that has to be used against the 2,400 names uh, manuscript that is encoded in that way, but not cipher in a way like the pig pen cipher or, or that you get other Masonic orders, okay. not to my knowledge. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. So let's take one question from the chat and that is, could there be an Orthodox uh, Celtic church influence such as reintegration as Western form of theosis or henosis? Oh, I think that was Glenn's question. Okay, sorry. <laughs> sorry, <laughs> I'll skip that. I just uh, noted all the questions and sorry. So the next question would be, how does Sigil appear in the mind's eye or midair as an illuminating third object? It's a really good question. You know, like it's essential really when we're speaking about any magical tradition, you know, it could be the Elecon, it could be the Golden Dawn. It's, do these things exist or are they psychological aspects? As a bond, com- uh, com- uh, the bond companion, is that your higher self? Is that you meeting your, your higher self? Uh, do these things exist as real entities or is it a psychological type of uh, therapy? Is it about working through yourself, the interior world rather than the, the external uh, fabric of the universe? At least from Pasquale's uh, perspective and the documents that I've read, everything he's speaking about is in the literal world. He's not talking about the idea of an apocalypse of the mind, for example. He's talking about an apocalypse of the world, the physical, actual regeneration of the world, not an internal thing. So by that rationale, uh, the sigils, the luminous glyphs were to appear in the actual space within the lodge room that you were using. Uh, we have reports of Villamoz talking about when the most he had experienced would be the sound of stones dropping on the roof, slight lights in the room. So it is a physical, actual thing that they are discussing. There's nothing uh, within the primary documentation that suggests that it should be seen as a 
internal mind's eye a psychological process. However, many people do interpret it as that in the modern day. If for you that this is a, a, a system that has meaning and this can be something you can apply in your everyday life. Pasquale goes at great lengths to say that the system, the primitive cult has to be rewritten for every age. And if that makes more sense to the modern age, then it's entirely keeping with the, the, the Cohen tradition that it should be rewritten for the age in which it has been practiced. Thank you. No question, Martin, in YouTube, so for George. Wonderful. So, yes, um, Brian, you've been waiting a long time. Uh, it's so uh, uh, the floor is yours. Well, I have a couple of questions. Will this be available to go back and listen to later? I'm kind of slow. I can't get everything on the first run. Yes, Brian, this will be available on YouTube, so you can you can watch it. Uh, repeatedly. Okay, the other thing is, I am a Martinist, I am a Rosicrucian, and I fell down the Sufi rabbit hole a few years back. And what I come to find out, I think a point within a circle and all these different orders around that circle looking at the same object from a different point of view and from a different perspective. So has anybody looked at a connection from a central source for all of these things? Do it. Do you believe that there is a, uh, a original, uh, um, what did he call it? Um, a original primitive philosophy uh, that uh, we can discover from circumspection? I think it's a valuable idea. And I think a, as Masonic scholars, as people interested in these ideas, it's important not to uh, disregard this idea. I think uh, personally, when you come to research masonry, come to research spiritual orders, that you have in your mind what your methodology is. I think that uh, the idea of a, a Prisca Theologica, an ancient wisdom system, a, a primitive cult, uh, and the reality of that, it is not really for the scholar to validate or to criticize. Really, it's about uh, appreciating that this group that you're studying believe in that. For example, if we take another order, like the, the Hermetic uh, Order of the Golden Dawn, if I can't prove that the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn had the genuine lineage to ancient Egypt, that does not mean that I just give up studying the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. I'm able to accept that the people involved in that believed in it, and this should be taken as an important thing. Too long has Masonic scholarship been throwing the baby out with the bathwater. There's been this emphasis on, you know, we're going to study Masonry in the 18th century, but we don't actually care about what Masons in the 18th century believed because it can't be proven historically. I think that we have to approach these ideas from a middle position, a, a sympathetic neutrality and understand that for those involved in these traditions, the idea of a primitive cult, the idea of a Prisca Theologica is deeply, deeply important. And for the people involved, it was a historical reality. In the same way as within wider Freemasonry, the origins of uh, the craft in Scotland or in the Crusaders or with the Knights Templar, that was a historical reality. And if we're going to be scholarly about 
what we're doing. We have to acknowledge that that is an important part of it. As mystics, as initiates, as spiritual seekers, uh, that's another point. You know, we could go in there and, and believe it or reject it for its spiritual value. I would say uh, that it is important when we are reading this type of material to know for ourselves, are we reading as mystics, are we reading as scholars, or are we going to try and get some kind of middle ground? And that's what I try to do with uh, my work in the Elkhorns and esoteric Freemasonry is understand that there is a reality to this for those involved. And we cannot just focus on the idol of origin and reducing things down to politics and economics and historical uh, factors. Pasquale had a genuine divine revelation and those that followed him believed it as such. And whenever we speak about this type of uh, material, we should acknowledge that and not be too reductive and uh, put it down to mere politics or economics. Stuart, I just want to say how beautifully poetic it is that your answer to a question based on the symbolism of the point in the circle involves a, uh, a balance between academic and mystical insight being the middle ground. <laughs> I think that's superb. Um, Brian, um, often I, I hear people ask similar questions when they're looking for a common antecedent, a common source, a original tradition. And I, I often find myself thinking that what they've really discovered, that point in the circle where all their traditions and all the wise people that they consult concur and agree is actually something called the truth. And that's what they've found. Um, Roland, you've been waiting for a while. It's, uh, it's your ground now. Thank you, thank you. Uh, thank you brothers for the amazing uh, lecture. Um, my question is regarding an order I've been doing my research on that is contemporary and pretty much in power today. It's a Gnostic order known as uh, the Order of the Jesuits. Um, it had its history and it had its days underground. Um, have you seen in your research at any point um, um, a correlation or a, a meeting point between the Jesuit order and the Martinist order, especially in those same, um, same directions? I'm afraid I don't have a much of a knowledge on the order of Jesuits. It's not something that I've looked into and I really wouldn't be qualified to say. I, 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 I honestly, I'm not entirely sure. I wouldn't be able to answer that, I'm afraid. Sorry. And let's take uh, another question from the chat. Could it be possible that the original Templar Knights practiced similar magic rites magical rites as the Elus coins. I understand a lot of people believe that and I can understand the, the value of that as, a, as an idea, as, a, as a, a mythology that brings some kind of spiritual uh, weight with it. From a historical point of view, no, I don't believe that's the case. However, the idea is very important and it's a whole part of masonry in the 18th and 19th century about the, the origins of the masonry and, 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 and truth and Gnosticism 
uh, and secret mysteries coming from the Knights Templar. And as I said before, I, I don't believe that it should be dismissed out of the hand, but I understand it is a, an a, 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 a philosophy, an idea rather than a historical truth, at least in my opinion. And again, I, I tried to take that middle path between the two and see the value of the idea and how it affected people in the real world whether or not the idea is factual, uh, I, I don't personally believe that to be the case. No question in you too. Martin said, uh, Samir, you've had your hand up for a while. Thank you very much. Uh, my question is uh, related to the time that Pasquale was in San Domingos. Uh, were you able to find anything uh, related to what was he doing over there in terms of practices? If he got influenced by some of the local practices or if he was able to influence the local practices? A fascinating area, the, the Pasquale story. Uh, the best I could see is uh, I've been able to uncover the, the final letter from Pasquale to Willemos where he describes uh, the fact that he's dying. And he talks about wounds on his, his legs and his, his hands. And to me, it reads like a form of stigmata. I think that he's writing back, uh, presenting himself as a deeply pious man who's dying from the effects of stigmata. I know that he was going there to uh, receive an inheritance. So his family had uh, business interests there. Again, it's a painful hypocrisy that he's involved in slavery that uh, for all his talk of reintegration uh, and, and the dignity of man, uh, he's quite happy for, for to, to, to receive funds uh, from slavery. Uh, something I find it hard to, to reconcile with. The main point about the Haiti connection is really for some people that there's an influence uh, between the ceremonies and rituals of the Elokoan on the, the, the local voodoo and the practice of uh, the, the Haitian uh, native spirituality. I am pretty much open to the idea that uh, the ideas of the Elokoan could have went on to become part of the folk culture and the, the, the voodoo religion within Haiti. I don't accept the idea that the, it goes the other way, that Pasquale was influenced by voodoo. I think voodoo might have been influenced by at least some of the ideas. It seems to make sense to me that if you're a, a local within Haiti and if you see these rich, powerful aristocrats and you'd find out uh, eventually that they're working these grades, it might be beneficial to you. You might end up gaining money. You might be able to uh, be as successful as they are and, adopt these practices it's 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 very tempting to see a connection between the the symbolism of the the haitian voodoo and the the Elokoans, but i really don't have the evidence for it i think more work has to be done and i think it has to be done with primary evidence and that would involve a trip to haiti and that's a long trip from scotland thank you very much for the excellent presentation thank you thank you and the question comes from the chat uh, would you consider, Brother Cleland, uh, this is uh, this as one of the most evolved orders by intent? In your research into the workings of the order and its members, is there any hint of those initiated elevating themselves 
way above the superficial divisions of religion and culture? Well, again, I think that's it's a personal question. And, you know, you're talking, the Eloquins is a religion. You know, it's difficult to speak uh, here today uh, when I'm fully aware that this is a, a lived religion. This is people's beliefs that we're talking about here. And I, I try to speak about it with sensitivity uh, and understanding. Uh, people's religious experiences are not people being deluded. You know, there's people today who are practicing koans, and I would never, ever try and say that their religiosity, their uh, spiritual experiences are anything less than deeply profound and important to them. Uh, but again, from a, an, an academic point of view, we have to study this rather than validate it or criticize. Who am I to talk about the, uh, the efficiency and the efficacy of working rituals. I would never study the Catholic re religion and go in and say that the, the mass is, is nonsense. So I would never come in and say that these uh, initiates were deluding themselves. However, when we look at the historical record, when we look at the, the, the letters of those involved, we are talking about real human beings here and they have their flaws. Pasquale is, is a man who uh, struggled financially his entire life. And the letters tell us that the members of the order had to pay his debts. We read about how he instructed Willemons to uh, treat his ill sister by injecting cow's milk into her womb. These are uh, mistakes. These are, are things that today we may find challenging to reconcile with this mystic leader that we have. Pasquale was settling his debts through slavery. These are, are, are things that are the real world and that are interesting. But again, we can't reduce it down to that. Uh, there's reports from the Abbey Fournier, one of the last Cohen's who was actually uh, buried in England uh, under St Pancras sta uh, Station, uh, of seeing Pasquale uh, after his death, that there was visualisations of them. Of course, there's going to be some that will say that I don't have access to secret material, that there's accounts of transformations and a secret tradition that uh, is beyond my uh, remit and that's fair enough the, the, the spiritual aspects of uh, people's encounters with angels and spirits and the, the, the ghost of their dead masters is beyond the remit of academic sub, uh, research and you know that's something for a spiritual discussion thank you very much and there is a question from youtube uh, viewer Emmanuel is asking if uh, what is the main difference between Elfi de San Martin's unknown philosopher groups and Pasquale's Elus coins? If you could so, elaborate on that. Certainly. So the, the whole focus of, of my paper today and the majority of my research into Elus coins is that the concept of the doctrine of reintegration. I am interested in the theosophy, the idea that uh, Pasquale's Excuse me. The idea, the philosophical framework that underpins Pasquale's practices, and it's a doctrine of reintegration that is the thing that's passed on down the ages. And very soon after Pasquale's death, the abandonment of the ritual, of the practices, of the, the ceremonial, and what happens is it's the, the mythology, the theosophy that's passed on. 
Pasquale's ideas were abandoned by Willem Oz and uh, Louis-Claude de Saint-Martin fairly early on, and that was the, they were the most devoted disciples. But the ideas of philosophy is what stayed on for uh, Louis-Claude de Saint-Martin, the, the whole elaborate ritual, and it is elaborate rituals, that were no longer needed to meet God. He wanted to go for a mystical path, but the philosophy, the theosophy remains. And Saint Martin and Willemoz managed to keep that tradition going, the, the, the background theosophy. And the, the difference between the two is that one is magical and the other is mystical. Now, again, I've been told that there is other examples of the, the practices continuing on, but not in any kind of organized shape. Even during the height, the heydays of Pasquale's Elico, and you're talking a very small number of men that were doing this, we, you have to think of the means that would be involved. You're talking about three-day rituals that involve rooms big enough to include three stoves. The amount of candles that's involved, a working man would not be able to afford even the candles to do this. This was a, a very substantial financial obligation. Uh, and time-wise, uh, it would take up uh, a withdrawal from the world, uh, an ability to have the, the, the room and the functions to be able to carry these out. Louis-Claude de Saint-Martin shows or tries to teach that this can be done personally, one-to-one, -one, through discussion, research, contemplation. And the doctrine of reintegration, I believe, is the value of Pasquale's Elo Cohen. That is the backbone of the Martinist tradition and the thing that has survived, and I think it's survived for a reason. Wonderful. David, any other questions before we go back to people here? You, there are two more hands, so uh, let's go around. If yeah. anyone has a uh, um, second or third question, uh, well, we are lowering your hand, but you can kind of uh, get in line because there are many questions and to be fair to others. So Certainly I will wait. Now. Yeah, I'd, let's go for uh, for the audience. Certainly. Now, before we carry on, um, I'd like to just add something. Um, Stuart was asked whether this system works and whether he was aware that uh, people came to personal uh, transformation and improvement by this. I just wanted to add that I'm not a Martinist, but those who I've met so far have all been extremely genuine in their, their focus. That's the main quality that I can say is consistent between them. So uh, I can give you a good report on, on that, uh, that they're, they're really engaged and really doing it. So Helio, uh, this is, uh, it's your chance to ask a question. Okay, thank you. My name is Elio. Oh, Elio. <laughs> exactly. Um, yes, I'd like to bring something up that uh, I didn't hear uh, in this exposition is the role of um, the incense that they used during the operations. I mean, we know that, and it was alluded before whether these ciphers, these signs, these lights they, they saw during the operations were psychological or physical. And uh, um, you uh, prone to say that they are more, they were physical. And uh, I do agree that, uh, and 
it, we can see that they had to prepare themselves uh, psychologically for the operations by the fasting, no sexual relations, etc. Prayer. They were already um, expecting something to happen, and that was added by the different types of incense that they used. And there, you know, there are a whole gamut, and they mix them together. And they could have been, and my my my, what I postulate is that the incense, this mixture, were actually a hallucinogenics. So uh, the the ciphers, the signs, the lights they saw were physical in this, not really physical, but um, produced by the hallucinogens, by this mixture of. Um, uh, incense. So it's a kind of a self-hypnosis. They prepare themselves with all those rituals and fasts, etc., and then have this incense, and that produced um, what they thought they're seeing. Um, these ciphers that were interpreted, and I think there's an important element that was not uh, mentioned here. What do you say? No, certainly. Again, what I would say is um, I would approach uh, the subject of the eloquence from the uh, perspective of, of religious studies. Uh, and uh, I would say that the, you know, the reality of spiritual experience is beyond the remit of scholarship. It's a, a, personal, a personal thing. That being said, uh, I, I, there is a strong argument for the effect of the regime on the experience. If we take, for example, the, the highest grade, the, the require, you're talking about three days intensive uh, focus fasting. You are getting limited sleep. You know, you can only sit, sleep for seven hours at a time. You are a really a repeating, which in other traditions would be understood as a mantra. It sees deep prayers of degradation about how unworthy you are, you're prostrate, you're reading by candlelight, you are filled a, in a room by a incense, smoke filled room by candlelight. It could be your third day on it. The Ruqua involves very visceral a, elements within the degree involving the mutilation of animals, smoke. It's a very intense situation to be in. And I've no doubt that the lack of sleep, the incest, uh, the uh, deep repetition of continuous prayer will have an impact. Again, whether that is the sole uh, root of the visionary experiences is for me beyond scholarship. Wonderful. Now, David, I think you've got a few more questions. Yep, I got some of them uh, noted. Uh, one comes from uh, Gavin McOlley. Uh, how did Pesquale come to know the 2,400 names in hieroglyphs? Well, it's really interesting. There's been like a, a books written on this. Many of them relate back to physician and Egyptian and Chaldean, Babylonian symbols. There are about a third of them that have been recognized as historical uh, marks and images 
uh, and the other two thirds seem to have come from Pasquale themselves. But there is historical uh, precedence for these sigils that they're not entirely from his imagination, if we want to go down that route. But uh, generally, the idea is that Pasquale had worked with these spirits and been able to receive them from the, uh, the spirits that he encountered, and also his research. I think a big part of this would be reading the grimoire tradition and historical avenues that, that really, you know, this didn't come ex nihilo. There's a whole tradition of sigil writing and the, the planetary and the uh, spiritual uh, names. I would say that he would probably is indebted to the likes of Cornelius Agrippa, Henry Cornelius Agrippa, Trithmanius, uh, a whole host of, of uh, medieval traditions there and Renaissance magic. Uh, for me, I, I, can't, I can't get over that uh, there isn't more research into the origins of Pasquale's ideas. And they are magpie-like. He, he's bringing a great deal of information together. Uh, but the sigils are a fascinating a area of the, the Cohen system and there's a lot more than 2,400 there's many but there is evidence of them in history which is a fascinating idea Steve just made comment uh, in the chat so let's keep it in the recording as well there are not 2,400 really there are only about 600 or so most are repeated four times so that comes from Steve Adams Martin, no question in YouTube. Wonderful. Okay, so we have a question from Adam now. Adam, um, Adam Stoddard, um, you put your hand up. Yes. Hello. I have a question. It's a slightly off topic. Uh, this being the United States in today's Independence Day celebration. I was curious, there's kind of rumors and theories about some of the early Masonic Jacobites being kind of the, the starting point of the revolution here. And there's ties to claims that George Washington was a Jacobite and that he had these mystical practices that he used and that there's another kind of subgroup within that founding fathers that wanted to put the Bonnie Prince as the king of America. Um, not sure if any of that stuff kind of popped up in your research anywhere. It's just, that's a little off topic, but it's very similar. Yes, not in the American sphere, unfortunately, although I have heard those rumors. The Stuart line uh, were uh, mixing political and religious ideas. They were doing the same thing that happens all over the world today. It was propaganda. You have England and Scotland coming together uh, in a union that is similar or has been put forward in the mind of the public at that time is the same thing that happened with Israel and Judea. You have the Stuart line representing the Solomonic line. You have ideas of the, the Scots being uh, orientalized, that their origins are in Egyptian princes and princesses, that the stone of destiny is a biblical object. And the Stuart uh, dynasty are publicly and, uh, and purposely propagating this idea as a, a PR stunt. And within uh, France, you've got this idea that's taken 
uh, taken off in the high degrees, this idea of an exiled king who's from the Solomonic line, who has been exiled into the continent. And uh, he is from a royal lineage that brought together a great kingdom. And uh, you have paintings by Rubens and uh, many other artists that are putting forward this idea of the Stuart dynasty as uh, the Solomonic line. And Catholic France are really into this idea. Many people are supportive of Bonnie Prince Charlie and this Catholic restoration back into, uh, in, into, into Britain. And it starts to, to grow and to be developed. And it's really, really of interest to the, the aristocratic French. You have the exiled Stuart uh, court in France raising funds for their uh, invasion by giving clandestine orders of knighthood. Can you imagine how exciting it would be to be initiated into the order of the thistle by an exiled king for your a French aristocrat? And this is leading into spiritual chivalry. The idea of a, the Knights Templar had escaped into Scotland because Scotland were a Protestant country a, well, not a Protestant country, but Robert the Bruce had been excommunicated from the Roman Catholic Church, so the Knights Templar were able to find refuge. They became the Freemasons, which was presided over by James the Mason King, as was portrayed in Anderson's Constitutions. This starts to be a heady mixture in a time when many Freemasons are feeling alienated by a rationalism, enlightenment ideas, and they can withdraw into this kind of mythology, this pantomime of the chivalric knights and divine right and manifest destiny. And the, the Stuart court is just all too happy to manage this, to continue it on, to help bring people into their political cause. So, I just a quick follow up question. So one thing I've seen over and over is that whole concept of the divine right to rule. I've seen it on um, um, the unfinished pyramid kind of symbolism where the Jacobites or the Bonnie Prince in his line tried to establish the holy bloodline going back and into uh, uh, the Sudan periods that are unfinished. I've seen it with the letter E kind of being hidden in different things and the Phoenix. Um, are those kind of tied into the same mystical stuff or are they just kind of, hey, I picked my own symbol and this is what I'm going with? Yeah, I think as far as Pasquale is concerned, you know, I tried to allude to it in the, uh, the presentation that he has this Gnostic cosmology of God as the celestial king. And you have the French royal court, which was divine. The sun god, Louis, was the central a idea like God and the angels and the hierarchy coming down of the French royal court is reflected in the Gnosticism of uh, Pasquale. He's nostalgic for this age. He's nostalgic for the, the divine right to rule, the inherited wisdom, the, uh, the, the, the sovereignty of royal blood. And the Stuart line and the Stuart mythology ties into all that. And the, when we talk about uh, Ecosse Freemasonry, it's always coming back to this idea of divine right, manifest destiny, of secret knowledge, 
uh, all tied into royalist interpretations. And I think when you are talking about America and the, 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 revol uh, the revolution there, I think these are uh, an antiquated idea by that time, an idea that's uh, for those that are uh, Masonic, those that are interested in uh, antiquated ideas, and there's a kind of nostalgia for that, a nostalgia, a counter-enlightenment from mechanistic, mechanic understandings of the world through democracy or anything like that. We need a natural religion, a natural king, a natural morality. Thank you, Stuart. Then we have a question from the chat that comes from uh, Glenn Holcomb. Uh, how was uh, La Chose or Cause identified experientially versus another entity or spiritual uh, spirit in ritual? My understanding is that the, the shows was the, the ultimate aim. This was the, the, the pinnacle of the, the work. And the, this would not be something that we could be mistaken. Whereas your reconciliation uh, with your bond companion or uh, any other spirit would be something that you would be familiar with, but you would be uh, practiced in. The experience of uh, receiving the, the, the primal Christ would be something that would be unmissable. I, I don't think you could mistake it for something else. How this is written by Pasquale, I'm not familiar with. I don't know of any description of Lachaud's uh, actually manifesting, but uh, I'm sure there must be somewhere. I just haven't found it. Thank you. And as we don't have any more hands, there are two more questions uh, from the chat. And uh, in 10 more minutes, we'll uh, finish the lecture. And uh, the question comes from uh, Claudio Silvaggi. Uh, question is, what's your opinion on the misunderstood taking down the church as a metaphor for the metaphysical gnosis of the disobjectification from the physical self? And part two of that question would be, how is it a master creates self portrayed if they have reached gnosis? Okay, so the first question there, I think, is its roots in Paracelsus. This idea of destroying or breaking down the Maya kick, uh, the Church of Stone, the, 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 stuch, uh, the Church of Brick. And this is coming from a Protestant point of view, the idea of building a, an internal Church of the Spirit, a sanctum subtorium within and destroying the, the, the Church of, of Stone, of Orthodoxy. And this was an idea that... Uh, Paracelsus put forward in his theological writings that were published long after his death. And it's ultimately that belief that goes on to influence the Rosicrucian uh, manifestos, this idea of a radical change happening, that we're going to pull down the stones of the, the, uh, the, the, the Meyerkirk, the, the Steinkirk, uh, that is going to be the architect who takes the bricks away and discovers and opens a door onto Europe. And I think you know, the Rosicrucian heritage is, is a, a, not something that's emphasised in the Elecoans too much, but I believe it's important. Uh, the Ruqua was a, a, an unknown secret society labouring to heal the world. Again, a Rosicrucian idea. And the idea of uh, destroying the churches, uh, an idea that happens within uh, Paracelsian uh, groups, neo-Paracelsian groups 
uh, pietist, leading into the, the quietist movement as well that I mentioned in the, the lecture. The second question, I'm, I'm not quite understanding what you mean, that the master uh, being beyond a personality? But, but, but no master memory. creates, uh, how is it a master creates self-portraits if they have reached Gnosis? Self-portraits, okay, well, it's quite an interesting idea. I would take it back to the idea of uh, writing under a pseudonym that goes right back in Christian mysticism. So if we take, you know, like the Gospels or something like that, is you take on a pseudonym, you take on a, a fake uh, or a, a, a non-diplume, something that goes right back to the pseudo-Dionysus Areopagite when he's talking about symbolism. He's writing under an assumed name, the name of the Dionysus, who was with the first Greek to, to uh, convert to Christianity. And that's knowingly done. This idea of the pseudonym or the unknown as a way to untether the, the, the reality of the, the author. And that's really important in a mystic sense. It's about removing yourself from your ego. Your name is no more. You're a pseudonym. You're unknown. So if you have achieved Gnosis, you are uh, beyond your own understandings of yourself, beyond your name, beyond your portrait, beyond what other people see you. You have knowledge. You've been transformed. And uh, I think that is a, a theosophical idea that leads you right back into Platonism and the uh, Neoplatonism the idea of a, a transcending a symbol, being out with the cave, your name, your image being the cave and looking towards the sun. And it's a, a, a train of thought that I see right through the whole of Christian mysticism leading into Martinism and the, a, the unknown philosopher and the, the, the unknown a, and the removal of the ego. Thank you, Claudio. If you want to follow up there, you just share the question. So as we don't see any uh, more hand, I will, um, I will share the last question that I have noted from the chats. And that comes from Jan Puff. I'm awaiting the arrival of my copy of the book. Uh, so does it contain any invocations or evocation ritual? And if so, is there any health warning to be, to be aware of dabbling. <laughs> well, of course, with, with any book of this nature, I would say it should be treated as the, with respect, and it should be something that's understood as a the remnant of a holy text. I've mentioned before that this is a, uh, a lived tradition. People are doing this today. It's a religion. It requires all the commitment, uh, and it should be spoken about with respect and, uh, and subtlety, and the, it should maybe reduced down to anything that makes it appear as anything uh, reductive. The book uh, is a transcript of a very messy notebook. It is the notebook of Avroquois, someone who has achieved the highest grade of the order. And it is their uh, notes, descriptions, reminders, copies of Pasquale's instructions. In the book, we start off with a beautiful tract on a, a Kabbalistic tract on the connection between music and a numerology and the 
how measurement and number and music fit together. Then it moves on to describe feasts that the Elicoans would hold on uh, the Feast of St John. It has invocations, it has notes on different uh, degrades within the Elicoan. It also has the statues of what's involved in being a Ruqua. It has the first full translation of the highest grade of the Elicoans, the Ruqua grade in English. This is a very visceral, almost shocking ceremony, which should be interesting to anybody with a, a background in ceremonial magic. It also has excerpts from other manuscripts. We have the angelic names, we have the lists of 2,400 sigils. We also have ecstatic drawings done by a member of the order. These amazing examples of kind of naive art that represent kind of mystic ecstatic experiences, deeply symbolic images full of snakes and men and stars and astrology and Hebrew. Really, for me, the book is worth it for those images alone. These are excellent examples of a mystic art of the 18th century, really outsider art that should be appreciated in itself, never mind for what it reveals about this um, aristocratic Masonic order. The book is something that is a, some a reference. I would say that it is not a book to open up who, for someone looking for an introduction to the Elocon. I believe there's a lot of material out there that will introduce you to it. This is for those who would use a book to write, to practice, to try and keep this a tradition alive. I'll give you an insight into the primary sources. Now, I think that this is something we are missing in the uh, English-speaking world. We don't have the primary sources. Now, I've no doubt there will come a time uh, where there'll be better translations, there'll be better access to, to primary documents. But I'm doing what I can just now to open this up to people, to open this up to a way that we don't have to worry about gatekeepers People will tell you that you shouldn't read Kabbalah. You shouldn't look at this uh, mystical theory. You can't do this. You can. Don't allow people to tell you that you can't. This needs to be opened up. It needs to be researched, whether if that's in an academic way or in a spiritual way. Pasquale is really emphatic on the idea that this is a primitive cult that has been reformed, changed throughout the ages. It can be reformed. It can be changed. You do not need a to join an order to do this. In fact, Villamont initiated himself into the Ruqua degree. This is not something that is for the, uh, for, for, that, that, that you would need to join an order for. Anybody who's interested in the Elecoan is going to be somebody who's done their reading, who's been through degrees, who's been someone who has a background in a Western esotericism. The only word of caution that I would give when we study the Elecoan is that whilst the order is a philosophy of reintegration, it's also an order of de degradation or deintegration. The degeneracy of the world is a huge part of the order. And who you choose to call a degenerate is a complicated thing in today's world. If I can provide philosophy, a background to the philosophies, to a better understanding of what Pasquale was saying and what the order is about, 
perennialist philosophies, ideas of divine right, people who are somehow uh, different and better than everyone else, will not be uh, co-opting the co-an co idea into their philosophy. This is not a philosophy that uh, should be mixed in with the idea of uh, root races, of uh, caste systems, of uh, others being degenerate below you in your spiritual wisdom. And what I'm trying to do is make sure that people understand uh, the, the open nature of the Kohen order. This was a Masonic order that we're bringing in women at a time that when uh, such things weren't done. It is an open philosophy that is looking to reintegrate anyone in a personal way. This is what Saint Martin saw in it. This is what Willemos saw in it. And I think the strength of the doctrine of reintegration is that it's an open thing and it should be more open. Martin? Wonderful. Um, I've got to say, just to add to that, I think everyone who gets the book will find the ritual for the admission of women really very interesting. I think it's, it's, uh, it's, it's inspiration and theme is, is, is uh, quite, quite uh, something. Okay, so I don't think we've got any other questions. So I'd like to, so after you, David. I have my question, just two questions, oh, okay. very quickly. Simple ones, I, uh, I suppose. Um, the first question is, Stuart, uh, uh, this manuscript that has been translated into English has been uh, the basis to create or recreate or revive the order in 1940s, right? Uh, so is it, uh, um, uh, has this ritual been used uh, up to date or we're talking about something that uh, has been there, but now it's not really uh, practiced anymore? No, it, it wasn't known until I think it was the 1940s, I believe. Uh, and the, it was kept under wraps. There was co-an order, uh, a co-an order in existence. And uh, the person who was running that co-an order owned this manuscript and kept it from his members and taught a completely different system whilst all the while holding on to this original coing system. Eventually that coing system was then uh, shut down. Now we could say that this is because uh, he realised that the order was in existence at the time, had nothing to do with the original order. It could be that he believed that the order uh, as it was originally practised is not possible in the 21st century, that it needs to be reformed. However, it was kept and then it was given to the uh, Bibliothèque Nationale Francaise uh, under the understanding that it would not be copied or uh, photographed or uh, photocopied uh, for 20 years. And it was then after that embargo that it became available it is available just now on the Galatia website. Anyone can go on and look at that. And I would encourage them to do, to do that. Uh, whether or not that has been used for modern day Cohen orders, uh, I, I don't know. I, I don't have an understanding of modern day Cohen orders. I believe there will be some that have reformed and been able to look at the primary documents. Good work been done in that. Uh, but 
uh, that's that's beyond my rebit. There's, uh, I don't know, but the contemporary orders. Thank you. And another question would be, what makes it Masonic? As long as I've been uh, kind of uh, reading through the public uh, uh, resources, um, besides that uh, participants or the members uh, have been Freemasons, but besides that, uh, the mythos is different, like uh, Hiramabif is uh, not dying or whatever, and uh, you have uh, kind of, it is more open to gender, uh, different sexes and uh what makes it masonic well masonry was really the vehicle for the Elecon order it's uh, something that pasquale takes uh, in his opinion contemporary masonry for him was corrupt and that this was the true masonry it was a reform he was taking it back to what masonry was originally the masonic uh, practice was in pasquale's mind a, a form of worship. It was a primitive cult, the original form of worship to God, according to Pasquale, was a former Masonic ritual. It was uh, based on the working tools and over the years it had become corrupted and reforms were needed. Uh, for me, it's, it's still Masonic because it's regarding the rebuilding of the spiritual temple. I think, you know, it's a, a temple uh, by any other name. Uh, and it's still considered, uh, for me, a Masonic order until we get to the Ruquois. And I think at that point, it, it exceeds Freemasonry. It come, goes beyond the remit of what we would normally call as, as Masonic. And Masonry, with the Elucoans, with the Illuminati, has been hijacked. I find it an irony that people talk about how, uh, in the conspiracy theories, that Freemasonry has taken over uh, the world, but there's been so many people that have taken over Freemasonry for their own ends, whether that was El the Elucone or uh, the Illuminati or the Orange Order, there's, there's people that have taken over Masonry for their own ends. There's, there's a conspiracy against Freemasonry rather than Freemasonry uh, infiltrating other orders, uh, other walks of life. Okay, thank you. And uh, maybe final question, uh, Martin, and uh, we'll, we'll finish today. That comes from uh, Paul Rana. Stuart, may I ask, what makes you think we learn more self-initiated into uh, R plus? His May 1767 certificate shows in attendance Pasquale, Bacon de la Chevalier, Balzac, and his May 1786 certificate shows Pasquale, Grenville, Balzac, and Chevalier. So. So there is letters that have been published since the 1930s uh, of Pasquale uh, to Willemos, where Willemos complains about the amount of time it's taken. And uh, Pasquale, in elaborate detail, uh, explains to Willemos the manner in which he will be self-ordained in the Ruqua. He mentions that it will be done by sympathetic correspondence. There is documentary evidence to show that the actual ceremony was something Willemos done on his own, whereas the certificate and the verification of it may have been signed and passed to him, but the ceremony was done via sympathetic psychic uh, correspondence rather than in person. At least the, the documentary evidence that I've seen uh, suggests that to me. Thank you. I guess answer is taken and Martin. Wonderful. 
So nothing remains now but to thank uh, Stuart for a wonderful talk and such uh, insightful and eloquent answers to very complicated and varying questions. And uh, to uh, indeed thank everyone for attending uh, to contribute those interesting questions, insights, and, and to give your support to this project. This is, of course, the first of a, uh, an ongoing series of such similar events. And David, could you tell us a bit about what our, our next uh, event is going to be and uh, who our speaker will be? Sure. Uh, first of all, uh, thank you so much, Stuart, Martin, I can all the participants. Yeah, please, please, please go ahead. Certainly. So uh, next next uh, time we'll be uh, talking about the English Illuminati, and we'll have uh, Alistair Lees, who is the author of the English Illuminati, uh, coming along then, so you can discover about the the branch of the Illuminati that was uh, created in uh, in England and the history behind that, what rituals they were working, and and that kind of thing. Uh, so look out for that event and make a. Uh, a mark in your your diary for the first uh, Sunday of August, um, and we'll see you there. Definitely, first of August is the next first Sunday of the month, and we'll be we'll be hosting uh, that event. So once again, thank you so much, everyone. Uh, maybe final remarks, uh, Stuart. If you want to leave anything as this is being recorded, it will be on YouTube. Maybe you want to look at it in a kind of perspective and leave your final remarks um, for the recording, for the audience that will be watching, maybe how to advance their knowledge uh, in the topic that has been discussed, what other references, so whatever. If you want to take the floor, of course, yeah. Thank you. Brett, and thanks for your attention today. I understand that, that this is the complex the ideas and for your uh, inquiries and questions have been amazing and for your focus and attendance here today. I would say that uh, Masonic research is having a renaissance just now uh, with a pandemic channels like this. People are sharing and working together on books and research all across the world. Uh, libraries are scanning and making available manuscripts that haven't seen lights, the light of day for hundreds of years. It's almost like the 17th century just now. Masonic scholars are trading and uh, passing manuscripts between one another, those correspondence circles. I would encourage you to do the same. There is information out there on all orders from the 18th century onwards. There needs to be a move towards looking at the spirituality of Freemasonry, not just the historical origins. You need to be, uh, we need to be looking at the real uh, religiosity that was involved in Freemasonry and not throw the baby out with the bathwater. For too long, journals have been focused solely on names and dates. And I would like uh, and hope that this book encourages uh, others uh, out there to, to look at the spirituality, look at what those people at that time believed. Yes, we may not be able to historically verify a link to Egypt or, or to Scotland or to Celtic uh, Druids, but the people at that time did. It is an arrogant dismissal of your own subject not to acknowledge the beliefs and religiosity of a system that we've dedicated our life to. It was always more 
than a social club. And looking at the likes of uh, Pasquale, uh, Louis-Claude de Saint-Martin, uh, Villamons, uh, the whole high degree system is something that I would encourage you to access as the primary material is out there. A click of a button, uh, we were able to translate and put out a book uh, using a phone, a uh, laptop, uh, uh, and uh, our own talents and books. So please, thank you for your attendance today and I hope that uh, something like the Green Book can encourage others to do the same. Thank you so much, Stuart. And I will remind everyone that in the description of this video on YouTube or in Facebook, you will see all the links to Stuart and to the book on Louis Masonic. So you can uh, get your copy if you don't already have one. So I will have the pleasure to close the meeting today by reminding you that today we launched new project, Sapere uh, Aude and uh, Louis Masonic. So uh, from uh, daring to know, to think, uh, we started uh, promoting daring to read. So Legere Aude, today is the first one. Um, I'm so happy about launching it together uh, and excellent lecture, excellent questions. And uh, I remind the topic of today is, was the cult of the yellow coins, a true foundation of the allegories delivered by Brother Stuart Cleland, and today is 4th of July, 2021. And at the end, once again, all the participating uh, US citizens, congratulations on the Independence Day. It is already morning there. So I send my heartly uh, congratulations from Tbilisi, Georgia. So Nahwamdis and goodbye, this ends this lecture.